Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, and I'm a founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And I am Scott Sigler, New York Times bestselling novelist. And you really want to jump? Do you want to? Well, that's fine with me. Come on, let's do it, asshole. Let's do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And this is episode 12 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Today, we're talking about the 30th anniversary of the legendary buddy cop film, Lethal Weapon. Three decades since this, since this came out in 1987. Now, of course, people of our era will expect us to say, I'm getting too old for this shit. But you know what, Kovacs? For this episode, we're just the right age. Well, we're definitely old, though. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Uh, we're, some... not, we're not as old as Danny Glover was in this movie, though. That is true. Yes. Um, some people do say this is as close to perfect of a film as mm-hmm, possible. Mm-hmm. And there's so much talent in this. It's not just on the screen, but behind the camera and on the page as well, for sure. So, of course, this movie stars Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, arguably each legendary actor's most famous role. I, of course, think that Gibson's masterpiece is Braveheart. And, of course, he was the road warrior. He was the Mad Max in those movies. But I think that Lethal Weapon is, is really the one, that, uh, the one that put him on top, put him on top to stay. Or put him on, t- yeah, I think, well. Well, yeah, he's back again. So he just did all that Academy Award stuff. he wasn't up there the whole time. He yeah. had a little bit of a rough ride there for yes, a while. Yes, yes. What made him, it made, it. It, it certainly it put him on the map. Minted sure. him as a Hollywood legend, I think. Yeah, and he had such great, really, really gritty turns in like Gallipoli and, and like you said, the Road oh, yeah. Warrior and mm-hmm. stuff like that, that mm-hmm. this definitely made, it's one of those moments where you realize, oh, Chris Pratt is not just that chubby guy from Parks and Rec. He can do other things. It was the same moment, I think, where you realize this this gorgeous, dramatic actor could also be really funny. Yeah. And yeah. really serious as he's being really funny. And really, well, he's, he's been a great action star forever, so that's right. good, yeah. The movie was directed by Richard Donner. You don't know who Richard Donner is? You I gotta know. Don't know. Donner. Tell me who Richard Donner is. I don't know. Is. He maybe did a couple, two, three indie movies you might have heard of, starting with The Omen back in 1976, the 1978 Superman, starring Superman Christopher Reeve, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Pryor in The Toy, Lady Hawk, which is one of my favorites uh, that I'm afraid to go back and watch in case it isn't mm-hmm. as good as it was when I was yeah, 16. Yeah, keep your memories I want where they to, are. but I, I don't want to at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Goonies, I'm not sure if you've seen that. It was I a little film. I don't, I've never heard of this. The, <laughs> the Goonies, you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, bet, I bet it's nice. I bet it's nice. There was this up and coming uh, actor, Bill Murray, did mm-hmm. a Christmas movie called Scrooge. Oh, yes. With Richard Donner. Scrooge. It might work with the ladies, big guy, but it won't work on me. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then he did do quite a ton of television. He did some Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason, The Man from Uncle, Jesus. Twilight Zone, and lots more. So he's been, he's, he'd already been uh, just an amazing director with a huge resume, and then he did the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, he's, you'll see this again and again in this, um, when we're talking about this movie, there are a lot of people who really were at the time of Lethal Weapon, pretty much on the top of their Mm. game Mm -hmm. and uh, came together, which is so rare in Hollywood. They came together to make a a poignant, serious comedy, (laughs) which comedy, you know, comedy doesn't win Oscars. Comedy doesn't win BAFTAs. Comedy doesn't win, even though it's very hard to do. And then on top of that, it's a quite serious comedy, which is nice. It is. And so he's a renaissance man of genre, Mm -hmm. if you will. And now here's some fun bits. We always try and bring some new information about, as always, about the story and the storytellers. And the gentleman who wrote this, this is a almost as close as you can get to a Cinderella story. This year's Oscar win 
No, let's just eliminate that. Let's say this year's Oscar win was like a $2 million movie that won Best Picture. So we'll just move that to the side as the best Cinderella story of all time. Well, or Slumdog Millionaire. Like Slumdog Millionaire. There's thing. a handful like There's that. a handful. Yeah. But this, from a scriptwriter's point of view, uh, the writer of Lethal Weapon, his name is Shane Black. He famously played the hapless Hawkins in Predator, the guy with the glasses, in Poor Hawkins, Poor Hawkins, Predator. Um, and Lethal Weapon was Shane Black's first freaking screenplay. Now, we don't know if this is true or if they've puffed this up on the back end. Like, I, if I have a screen, movie goes and it's first screenplay somebody's bought and they make a movie, sure, that's technically my first screenplay. I've also written five other ones that I haven't tried to put out there or anything like that. But uh, Shane is a man of Hollywood. He was already an actor in big movies at the time. So he wrote this and since then, he has gone on to write other famous screenplays, such as The Monster Squad, because Wolfman ain't got nards. He wrote The Last Action Hero, The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and we also directed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, mind you. And he wrote Iron Man 3, which is still in the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time. More recently, he wrote The Nice Guys, which he also directed, and now, ma'am, it's coming full circle. Uh, Mr. Shane Black is writing The Predator, which is a re reboot of The Predator franchise and movie is expected out in 2018. And I, for one, will welcome our new Predator overlords and I will be there on opening night. Don't care, don't care, don't care. I will be there to watch it. So I'm thrilled that a guy who largely got his big start in Predator now, 30 years later, gets to come back and write the screenplay for the reboot of Predator. That's nice. It's, yeah, I hope it ends up like a fun, good movie. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes that doesn't, coming back to where you first learned to roost chickens, coming home doesn't <laughs> necessarily work. Uh, but hopefully it does, you know. Because um, I'm, I'm there too. I would love to see that. And, yeah. you know, it's nice because you think about people who you have followed or there's, and there's a million stories like this. The, the Goodwill hunting crew is a very specific yeah, example that they're actors, story, yeah. mm -hmm. but they go to Hollywood because they want to make movies and they specifically hit in Hollywood as actors. Mm -hmm. They start small, but they get obviously get big, Right. but they are, you know, Ben Affleck, I think is arguably a better director than he is an actor, but he doesn't get a chance to direct right out of the gate. Cause he's not a film school grad or whatever. And I mm -hmm. think, this is another example from a different angle of Shane Black coming in and then becoming a screenwriter, which is where his his biggest skill set, I yeah, think, is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But you think about how much you would learn just being, getting daily notes and everything else on a, on we're, a and we're set. already we're already in that process. We don't have anything being made right now. We've got some uh, a project that's in script revisions right now before we'd go to the camera and already just learning a ton. We've yeah. learned so much at every step of the way, and hopefully something happens with this, but if not, we're still gathering all that information and getting to peek peek behind the curtain and it's every day is a re revelation to is do I say that right revelation or revelation? revelation every day every day is a revelation to oh that's how they do that i had no idea that was even a thing that was can yeah. That was even a debatable thing. You just, you don't even look at it. Here's right. a piece that we didn't even, it's just invisible to you and it takes days and days and weeks. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And you, that's what I'm wondering if Shane Black benefited from having oh, been yeah. an actor reading a script. Hopefully he picked up a lot of that and certainly has come through in his, his screenplay work for sure. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Sigler, uh, did you see this movie in the theaters 30 years ago? Of course I did. Not only did I see it, I probably saw it 10 times in the theater 30 years ago. Any of those 10 viewings, any chance you were wearing acid wash jeans? I'm not entirely sure. If I was, they were ripped. But I can tell you that for all 10 viewings, I had a full 
full head of luscious, curly, <laughs> strawberry blonde hair that just drove the ladies crazy. I see. Crazy. So those must have been the good old days then. Mm-hmm. Well, we just watched Lethal Weapon, rewatched it yesterday. So let's talk a little bit about that story. But before we get involved into our thoughts about this movie, here's what's coming up in the next four weeks. And we apologize that we missed our planned ranking of the Wolverine movies. We actually got busy working on the show that Scott mm-hmm. was just talking about that we can't really talk too much about yet. But we feel like if this comes to fruition, this is definitely worth missing. Yeah, you guys won't complain. (laughs) Yeah. However, if you guys want to rate them and let us know, we we could certainly do a retrospective. Like we could look and and see if our rankings match yours sometime Mm -hmm. later in the summer, I guess. So upcoming on uh, future episodes of Story Smack on March 10th, hopefully our last bit of nostalgia for a while, we it's the 25th anniversary of Gladiator. And we get into new stuff. On March 17th, we're covering the King Kong franchise from beginning to end all the movies uh, to get good and geeked for Kong Skull Island, which I feel is going to be the rebirth of just serious, kick-ass, awesome monster movies. I'm very excited about it. So we're going to cover the history of this legendary ape and tell you things about him that you may not know. Okay, okay. Yeah, and you know, it's a shame. We are, it's not a shame. We're going to be in Europe when that comes out, so I don't know if we get to see see. the... the Skull Island right away, but Mm -hmm. we can do the retrospective, certainly in advance. Then on March 24th, we geek up for a Game of Thrones, uh, the new season of Game of Thrones with our Game of Thrones season seven preview. But I am not a regular viewer of the show. I just pointed to myself so everybody listening can hear. I think you might have heard me thump my own chest. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be more like a Game of Thrones explanation. I think this would be great. I think this would be great. I think people who watch Game of Thrones will enjoy hearing me geek the... F out about the show because I absolutely uh, adore it. It hasn't jumped the shark for me yet like The Walking Dead has, yeah. which I loved, but at one point the premise just ran out. So Game of Thrones, I'm big fan of the books, big fan of the, huge fan of the show, huge fan of the actors in the show. So I will be geeking out about it and you can share that with me. If you haven't watched the show and you want to hear about the questions a newbie would ask and get answered, well then, A. Kovacs is your proxy. Absolutely, so that's going to be that. fun. And on March 31st, we're doing a new little feature. We're going to start coming. We're going to start taking a look at various story elements of movies and books and things that are common in pop culture. The first one we're going to do is called "Murder Was the Case, Y'all," and we're going to talk about what actually defines first-degree murder, second-degree murder, assault, simple battery, all of those things, and just kind of give a categorical rundown uh, so that you are prepared the next time you're watching. Uh, that Law & Order marathon, because you're sick on the couch. Okay, well, that sounds great. So in the meantime, though, for now, for today, let's talk a little lethal weapon. (sighs) Well, I have to point out that uh, right out of the gate, right out of the gate in the movie, we start out with, with TNA. I mean, we're talking the first five minutes. There's mm-hmm. titties in the first five minutes. So there is the T. The T is totally covered. Uh, we've got um, Sergeant Murtaugh with his ridiculously perfect home life and his ridiculously perfect family. Uh, he's turning 50. And this is a big moment for him. Uh, I wish he'd have kept the beard. The beard was dope. <laughs> so, yeah, we meet him on his the morning of his 50th birthday. And um, he's, yeah, it's not, it is, it is comically uh, sitcom-y and perfect. Mm-hmm. Like his wife is a terrible cook, but they make him a uh, birthday cake that he's afraid to eat for breakfast. And, uh, <laughs> and then they all, him 
the wife and the three kids crash into the bathroom yeah. where he's taking a bath, which is how prosaic is that? He's taking a <laughs> bath, whatever. Um, and the whole time, like he is totally unapologetically a family man, like happy mm-hmm. that they're that they're there and they're celebrating with him. And the entire time, I'm like, can anybody see his Johnson? Can I anybody see his Johnson? Because that looks like, like plain bathwater. Can anybody thought, see that? I thought Glover played it. Oh god, yeah. Because that uh, the eldest daughter's like 18. It's really uncomfortable. Didn't see bubbles. And he played it. He he kept looking down to check. Although you don't get to see the water, and then he's just like, oh screw it. This is <laughs> this, this is my family. This is my family. Right. He's got that awesome James Harden beard cooking yeah, along. It's he true. looks it's he true. looks dope. Um, and then we switch over. So that is the, the perfect home life, the dream ideal for any family oriented man in America have that. Then we switch over to Mel Gibson and then we get the A, we get Mel Gibson's bare ass, which was a very, I thought, uh, you know, for 30 years ago, a very even handed dishing out of, of nudity. I mean, I would prefer it be more like that in general, just because, Two things. One, because it is a little sophomoric that we have such a restriction on everything except girls' boobs. And guys' because butts. Of, yeah, I mean, we don't even see a ton of guys' butts, though. So I like seeing it here. Mm-hmm. And I wish that was a little more common in general because that would normalize, which, of course, we all have a butt. We all, we you know, do like, have, you know, we all have a butt. Uh, but, you know, it's so funny because you were like, oh, a little, a little T, uh, A to go with the T. Like, yeah, and yeah. all I could think is like, this dude is so he plays uh, Martin Riggs uh-huh. and he is single a widowed but his wife has died in a car accident you've come to find out mm-hmm. and he is living in like a Winnebago in a parking lot at the beach yeah um, where he seems to have a TV hookup which I don't understand but that was a long time ago no, so he has, maybe he has, it was just he has analog. power and it was all just air just analog, terrestrial right? signals yeah. yeah so can't do that anymore but mm-hmm. all I could think is like Dude, are you kidding me? He lives in this shithole of a Winnebago and has spent all that time feathering his hair. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then you were like, I mean, at least we got to see, you know, ass to go yeah, to the tits. And I was yeah. like, ooh, not paying yeah, attention. That's what you, you were. You were paying attention to the wrong thing, ma'am. And right out of the gate, as soon as we are dealing with uh, Martin Riggs, I tell you what, at the 80s, I miss the days of, of freestyle saxophone riffs. Long, mournful saxophone riffs echoing with a lot of yeah, reverb you did. across the landscape. Wah, 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 wah. And you're like, oh, yeah. It's, it's very the, Miami Vice. It's very Miami yeah. Vice. It's the 80s. And shortly after, that's followed by two other wonderful things the droning guitar and, of course, a lot of keyboard. A lot, a lot of, of keyboard. A lot of electronic keyboard music. Yeah. And the whole palette of this movie, you actually brought it up where you thought there might be something wrong with the projector at the office. But the mm-hmm. whole palette of this movie is kind of dark like that. Yes. Especially, which is another rare. Like now we're much more accustomed to like the shaky cam. So you can't quite see the actual violence between human beings, which I know you hate shaky cam, but there's that. That's one of the distracting. So so it's shiny, happy versions of violence or sadness or whatever, because we still go to the movies. We don't want to be actually depressed in our actual life. We want to have this moment where we get to peek in on someone else's. And the whole palette of this movie, especially anything that involves uh, Martin Riggs, Mm -hmm. is quite dark. It's very dark. Yeah. I mean, physically, actually very dark. You know, I think that's a good point because when those scenes start happening later in the fight scenes, which are predominantly driven by um, Martin Riggs, everything's really dark. You know, you get your shiny spots are really blown up in light, but the whole palette is dark. It's even hard to see what's going on sometimes. You don't notice that when you're watching Danny Glover, the family scenes, because right. everything is like, it's a Brady Bunch. Right. right. Yeah. So 15 minutes into the movie, we've established that Murtaugh was our family man. He is a loving dad, and he owes a favor 
to a man named Hunsaker. Mm. Favors from back in the day. And we've learned that Riggs is crazy and he has a well-developed tuchus. This is all the information we have at this point. I think that's about the size of things. Still no villain 15 minutes in, which is super unusual for an 80s movie. Yes, and I have no idea if it's unusual or not for the 80s, mm-hmm. or, but I think it is probably a little unusual for today. And I think it's another sort of um, thing like you just pointed out about about the the equitability of the T and the A. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Danny Glover is black. Mel Gibson is white. And they have, that's never, the fact that, you know, the stable, normal one is the black man doesn't matter at all to the storytellers or the story. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes right. Because sometimes if it's different than the norm or maybe a little strange, that gets pointed out. But sometimes you get, you do, like, you get a little on the nose about that sometimes in a screenplay, and that doesn't matter at all. One thing that I found fascinating watching this 30 years later is the amount of sort of casual, like, really, truly throwaway lines that mm. I, I'm sure I didn't notice then, and I and were a little jarring to me now. Not, like, offensive, I have to throw my popcorn down and turn off the but like oh wow kind of like when you see people smoking and drinking on tv on like normal tv mm-hmm. or especially smoking on normal tv uh you're like oh really um but they i forget what's happening there uh they're at a place where where dixie's house blows up mm-hmm. and murtaugh comes after Riggs because his coat is on fire yeah. and he hugs him <laughs> he bear hugs him and without, like, he doesn't know what's happening, and the whole house in front of him just blew up, so he's obviously distressed, but he says, what are you, a fag? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it was so bizarre because it's so abnormal to hear today. And yeah. clearly, like, he wasn't, like, he wasn't, also, the character was not offended and horrified. He was like, what the hell is going on? He was confused, yes. and that was the choice that he made. Uh, and I've got some information on uh, some of those points, and I, of course, I have a list. I have a of list course. of things at the end of this, as it usual. It was just interesting, because there's so many equitable things, and and that that yeah. are noticeable for their equity in this movie and that's I 30 don't years think, old. That's a good point. I, I don't, and I haven't watched a TV show. But I'm assuming there's some level of racial commentary, racial humor in the TV show. Maybe not. You watch this movie again, even though you got black cop, white cop, not one, as far as I could recall, not one race-related joke, not one black joke, not one white joke. I think, and it was because the characters were all over the place. It's a very diverse cast. If they made this movie today, I, it's almost like they'd feel like it was mandatory to put something like that in. But 30 years ago, they're like, nope, these are just dudes just doing their thing. Well, and the other side, the other half of that is also true. Uh, Murtaugh's Murtaugh's daughter, when she first meets Martin Riggs, has it clearly has a starry-eyed crush on him. Mm-hmm. So she's a black girl with who has this very googly-eyed crush, and it's very innocent, but it's still very obvious on an old, way older white man. No mention he, he, at all. He is Mel Gibson, though. Let's let's well. get that. And she's dating a white boy at the time. That's yeah, yeah, but that but that doesn't really get mentioned. Doesn't at matter. All. It's and just irrelevant. Yeah. Then there's another moment where where. Uh, Riggs first comes into the precinct and mm-hmm. he's coming in with whatever admin cop or whatever, the chief who's going to introduce him. Right. To, but they don't have never met. And and Murtaugh sees him and makes him as a potential threat. Mm-hmm. And so you watch it. He's talking to another guy and he's like, yeah, yeah, go on, go on. And he's totally got his eye on Mel Gibson, on Martin Riggs. And Martin Riggs takes out his, adjusts his gun or something. Mm-hmm. And Murtaugh screams, Gone and everybody, including <laughs> Riggs, like turn and brace for impact it's and who, where the scene. threat is. It's such a good thing. Yep. And again, Murtaugh's the black one. 
Mel and Gibson's Rick, a white Rick's one. Rick's got profile for the mm-hmm. long hair. Right. <laughs> and But there's never mention of it because that's just, it was, it's actually nice to see. Again, it was shocking to hear some of the, some of the things we no longer do that are quite superficial, but mm-hmm. it, it was also really admirable to see some of the things that, that didn't register as a, we have to point this out because it's weird. And heading into the 23 minute mark, which is very important, uh, so much saxophone. There's so much saxophone going on. You guys, so... you guys watch it again. Just close your eyes and wee, 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 wee. I should have some reverb on that. 23 minutes in to the movie, Shane Black's taking his time penning this thing. Mr. Donner's taking their time. We finally meet our bad guys. And uh, let's be honest. Let's call it, let's call it like it is. This movie is Gary Busey's greatest work. It truly is. His Mr. Joshua is spectacular. He was born to play this role. The arm burning scene, it is completely dope. That moves us into the jumper scene, mm-hmm. which is uh, very, very funny. That's the one I cue to yeah, open up yeah. the show with. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Riggs throws the keys off, the handcuff keys off the top of the building where they're about to jump. And the guy follows the handcuff keys, doesn't notice the giant half a city block long jump bag down there. But, you know, we're going to let that slide. This isn't really a movie about those kind of details. Yeah, yeah, but I think you know they the the cheat where we don't know it's there. I is very eighties and very yeah. and you know and it's also like a twenty five second drop. Spoiler alert: they jump, um, but <laughs> but that takes forever. Yeah, and it you're takes like, forever. Those dudes are. 175, 195 pounds a piece, something like that. The tall one, the non-Mel Gibson one might yeah. even be 200. They would 
sink like a stone. Like yeah. they would not, it would not, there would not be time for saxophone and guitar. <laughs> and there was a lot of saxophone and guitar. But I can get the part where they're cheating us so that we don't, the viewer doesn't see it. And even though you would assume that, oh yeah, that makes sense. Obviously he's right. not crazy. But you're right. No, there's no eye tracking or anything to this gigantic it's huge. air mattress. It's yeah. huge. So uh, that, and that, that helps set the tone for the whole show. Even though our boys do get beat up a little bit, you're like, they just jumped off a 15 story building. And it's, uh, and they torture porn. We're watching them come down and you're like, well, they're not going to die. So that pretty much takes care of that. Then we get, uh, we, I love the cell phones. It's always funny to go <laughs> back and see cell phones. crazy for the cell phones. You know, they're like a lunchbox with a cable ca- handset coming out of them. And I think they worked them into the show in three, in the movie, three different places. Cause basically like, dude, we got to show off these cell phones. This technology is frigging amazing. <laughs> People are going to shit when they see this. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So yeah, they're, they're kind of piecing together that this initial, uh, this initial, what they thought was a suicide, clearly not a suicide, mm-hmm. has bigger implications. And then this guy, Hunsecker, turns out that was his daughter who died. This is the guy who owns, who owes uh, Murtago a favor, blah, 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 blah. Right. And right. he gets very big and international espionage and whatever. But the first time that we see the interior of the I'll call it the villain's lair. Mm-hmm. It's not even, I don't even know what it is, but it's where Mr. Joshua uh, has 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 brought Murtaugh and Riggs to torture so he knows what information they know. Yes, owe, yes. Which is also very 80s. Yes. Um, it's so hip. It's so hip. It's so, <laughs> like today, if we went into a bar like that yeah. and it looked like that and there was like dripping water in one corner and like light from a broken piece of the skylight or whatever and it was very sort of dark and dank and exposed brick and everything we'd be like this is pretty cool pretty hip place pretty hip place (laughs) so we're moving on and uh right after the cell phone scene where Murtaugh gives the now uh, utterly famous line i'm getting too old for this shit we start to get into solo dreamy guitar probably a stratocaster it's a lonely it's a mournful sound ma'am so now we're alternating between saxophone and guitar, and it's great. And then we get to 55 minutes in, the gun range scene. One of the many masterful bits of storytelling sets character and tone. Um, if you guys have seen this, you know. If you haven't seen it, you just absolutely need to watch it. But it's a fantastic combo of acting and directing. The looks between the two guys when Mel Gibson is moving the sign way, way back, and uh, the little comical, timely pauses, and then the, the smiley face, and the shot from behind the targets and you can see yeah, Danny Glover's reaction and you can see so this is for anybody who hasn't seen it or doesn't recall they're both in the same slot at a at a shooting range correct and Mel Gibson so Danny Glover sends out the target shoots it right through I think right through the face mm-hmm. and then it comes back and Mel Gibson says hmm and Mel Gibson at this point or Martin Riggs at this point has told us has told Murtaugh so therefore told us that the one thing he was ever he felt he was ever good at in his life was being a sniper, mm-hmm. and he was he got accolades for doing that, and that was the last time he felt like he was doing something useful. And uh, so that comes back to kind of roost when they're in this shooting scene. So Murtaugh says like, "Yep, that would have killed him," and then Martin Riggs sends it like twice as far away and shoots seven times, and and then switches sides of the camera angle so that he can be essentially stand like he was on the left directly in mm-hmm. front of the 
target. Yeah. But for the camera angle, it's better if he's over to the right, the right. so that the stage right so that the you can see the um the target when it comes back down the pike. Mm-hmm. And he has shot uh for Martin or I mean for Murtaugh's nose, he shot an eyes and a smile. Yes. Uh, and my favorite part of that scene is the entire time that he's sending out the target and waiting for the target to come back. He's going. <laughs> and you can't even handle like, okay, shut up, shut up, shut up. Have a nice day. Have a yeah. nice day. We moved to one minute, one hour and four minutes. And I, as many times I've seen this, if I have noticed this before, I didn't recall it. We get to hear Hunsaker say, because Hunsaker's daughter has died. That's the opening titties that mm-hmm. fall off the building mm-hmm. right. and die. He can say, I've got another daughter. And only now, watching this so many times, 30 times, 40 times, do I realize when Danny Glover is slipping through the yearbook that is evidence, they show Amanda Hunsaker and then her sister right next to her. Right. I never noticed that. So that's the only two mentions of those things. And the scene in the mansion during the Huntsocker funeral is, I think, just awesome. You look at the positioning. We get a cool window shot. There's a party going on in or the party nog in the foreground. The guy's got like a okay. case of eggnog. Yeah. So we talked about Christmas movies and whether or not Lethal Weapon was a Christmas movie on an earlier um, yeah. stories back. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I couldn't get over it. Like this movie starts with Christmas music. And it's a theme throughout the entire movie. And nobody ever thinks of Lethal Weapon as a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. Neither do I. So going back, just for one second, going back to our descriptions, like part of the thing that I asked then was, does does Christmas have to be part of the plot? Uh, But there wasn't a lot of Christmas in the other plot other than the giant teddy bear. Mm -hmm. And yet that's a Christmas movie. This one is not. Couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. But we get Gibson in the midground of this, establishing worries in relation to the big cliff the helicopter's about to come up from. And there's a lot of subtle positioning that Donner does. So once the action hits, you don't have to think about anything as a viewer. The chess pieces are all set in place. You guys, go back and watch it again if you get a chance. You don't have to wonder what's going on or how did he get there, who's where. It's all set up before the action comes. Even though there's a couple of continuity breaks, you barely notice them. And, of course, you got to see eggnog's got to get shot. That's I mean, why. the eggnog has yeah, to get shot. It's Chekhov's eggnog. It's in the scene for a reason. Party, party, party <laughs> nog. I would like to point out that at one hour and 11 minutes, the Stratocaster and the saxophone come together at last. Finally. They're both, they're, they're both playing together, and there's more reverb than exists in all of the land, because it's mournful stuff, man. I have to say, I have trouble watching uh, Intervention. Okay. I have trouble watching uh, Planet Earth. Uh-huh. I have trouble watching anything where there is a moment of drama that we are not wi- witnessing a dramatic reenactment of or watching live. Mm-hmm. So obviously we're not watching anything on Planet Earth live. Everything on Intervention is a dramatic interaction. And what they do when it is time for you to shift your perspective is the lone guitar plink starts. Blink, blink. Blink, blink, and now the tiny egret is going to die, <laughs> or whatever. And what I had that say, I had sort of a Pavlovian reaction to hearing the yeah. guitar and the saxophone together. And there's there's so many um, in jokes within this that clearly it's written and directed by people who adore action adventure movies. Because one of the things, one of the big clues to Shane Black knows exactly what he's writing and is a fan of these things. Um, it's been a while, a long time since I watched this, but after the funeral scene. Martin Riggs is on the street talking to call girls, trying to identify Trixie, 
if anybody's seen Trixie, and um, Gary Busey shows up, and Mr. Joshua, and blasts him with a shotgun, blasts him through, of course, it's the 80s. You've got to be thrown through a plate glass window. It was yeah, that mandatory. Had a, that had writing on it. Had writing like on it. So you break through that. And, and I'm, of course, I'm being snarky. I'm like, well, it's a good thing that shotgun blast didn't go, didn't, none of those pellets hit him in the face. How convenient is that when he's wearing the bulletproof vest? And the, like, the first line of dialogue when Murtaugh comes in to get him, was damn good thing that shotgun blast didn't hit you a couple inches <laughs> higher. And I was like, God damn it. It's like Shane Black watched, they watched it. They saw it. They're like, we're going to have to add some dialogue here. Cause we can't, we got to show the, we've got to show the viewer that we respect that they know what kind of movie they're watching and stuff like that. That has helped make it a classic one hour, 15 minutes. We get to hear the line. You're going to have to trust me in a very serious, somber moment. And are you familiar with Always Sunny in Philadelphia? I am slightly. Always Sunny in Philadelphia uh, loves to make fun of the Lethal Weapon movies. Hmm. Where they do a thing like, first of all, they've made Lethal Weapon 5 and 6, which are episodes. They are unbelievably funny. They're so good. But there's a scene in one of those where Murtaugh is shooting a free throw to win a basketball game, their version of Murtaugh, and he misses it. And later on, like... He has to shoot a grenade through a hoop. He's like, this is the part we find out that that thing I did in the beginning of the movie that didn't seem like it was a thing was actually a thing that that would come back and be really important at the end. And that that was, you're going to have to trust me, which is a throwaway line in the beginning of the movie that Danny Glover is is joking about. But now he's got to trust him because they got his little girl. Mm -hmm. They got his little girl. Um, At an hour and 23 minutes, we get our all is lost moment. It's terrible. I mean, Riggs is captured. Murtaugh is captured. The daughter's captured. What are they going to do from there? Uh, they're screwed, right? Movie's over. Everybody dies. Well, that's not normally how these things work. No, but they do manage no. to get out. They do. They do. They suffer a lot, but they manage to get out. Yes. We actually get to see salt in the wound, which is, yeah. I think, the only time I've ever seen this in a movie. That phrase, it's a phrase we've heard since we were kids. Oh, yeah. I was going to pour salt in his wound. And you never stop and think about that. Yeah. I would be curious if anybody listening has ever actually had a wound and been like, you know what? I wonder what that feels like. I am positive that somebody listening has been this silly and done this. (laughs) And I I mean, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing that I might have done in my childhood. I didn't do in my childhood, but I might have because I gave myself those eraser burns for no good reason. Yeah. So I'm sure I would have been dumb enough had I thought of it. My favorite part about that, though, is... It's literally a Morton's salt canister. <laughs> it's not sure like it. rock salt in the in the you know the industrial setting or whatever. It's like a hand me the salt. Okay, here, boss. There you go, bro. Here's your <laughs> it's, salt, bro. It's so amazing. It's like it's iodized. I'm I'm really shocked that my friends and I have never did not did not do that when we were kids. We did have a kid who liked to staple himself in our class. It's a lot of Just go right well. right down the arm with a stapler. Yeah, Gary Spray, like stapling his hand in grade school. Yeah. We, had, uh, we had some interesting kids in our schools. And then we finally get to the end. Ma'am, I have to make a mea culpa. Okay. I, have to, I have to hike up in the kimono and expose my own prejudices. Uh, you know, I don't like the shaky cam. You don't. I hate the shaky you cam. You do not And like I often refer cam. back to the 80s as the heyday yeah. of when, when, when men were men and women were women and directors used tripods. And talk about how people used to choreograph fight scenes. And although this fight scene, this classic fight scene between uh, Riggs and Mr. Joshua is is so iconic and so well done. Helicopter spotlights coming down. Mm-hmm. And Broken water. Water uh, mains shooting yeah. all over the place. It's great. It's shaky cam central. Well, it's shaky cam central and fuck all dark. 
It's fucking, you can't I tell. I mean, there's a couple of spotlights from the emergency vehicles or whatever, but the entire scene is relatively dark. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, you dark. can't really tell much about anything. Yeah. And they apparently, these guys, we'll get to this in the list, but these guys took a lot of martial arts training for this. Uh, and the fight, it, the fight does go pretty well. And there's some, if you've taken martial arts, there's a lot of moves you would recognize, including what I believe to be the first ever triangle joke in a movie. So far ahead of its time, when I saw it in the theaters, I'm like, the hell is he doing? I don't understand what's happening. Wait, but weren't you in high school? Yeah, yeah. And by then, that you hadn't had, you hadn't learned the ch- trying to. No, I, no, no. Wow. That, I, I was a wrestler, uh-huh. but um, no, I had never seen the triangle choke. This is pre UFC, pre MMA. Sure, sure. So it was just all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, and you sort of like when you're watching as a kid, you're like, you sort of get like think he's choking, but you don't yeah. really know until you watch a lot of MMA or until you've been put in a triangle choke. When you've been put in a triangle choke, you're like, oh yeah, he's screwed. Well, and that's interesting you say that. I didn't know that when we were watching because during the torture scene where they're beating up Martin and Riggs and, and or Martin and Murton Riggs, mm-hmm. and we see Murtaugh have salt in his wounds, uh, Riggs is being tortured with a car battery and a sponge and yeah, water. Yeah, great scene. Great scene. And he... Uh, spoiler alert, again, he exacts retribution on the guy who tortured him by breaking his neck with a triangle hole. Uh, the guy who's hanging him? Yeah. No, he has ropes around his feet, and I think he chokes oh, him, he chokes him to death with the ropes yeah. around his feet, which is just, uh, yeah, tr- as, as a teenage boy watching this, my friends and all my friends and I watched this over and over again and absolutely idolized Mel Gibson. And uh, one of the things that, one of the goofy things we did as teenagers was uh, a head snappy. Like you'd come up to someone and you like grab their chin in the back of their head and just do that and make this like, like that. And it was the job. It was the job of the person who got hit. You had to fall down because yeah, we were, we were a little bit of a, we were a little nerdy, but it was still super fun because it was so thrilling in this movie to watch. You're like, he just killed. Did you see him kill that dude? It was awesome. I know it was awesome. And then he shot the other dude. Oh my God. So you just mentioned something about you had a list of things maybe. Do you oh, have a yes. list of uh, lethal weapon yes, things? I have. Uh, Trivia things? From our friends at Mental Floss. My personal friends at Mental I don't have personal friends, but first of all, I'm going to read. <laughs> just say you don't have personal friends. Not, not at Mental Floss. Okay, no, but that's not what you said. I don't have Just those. clarifying that I need you to do finish. have friends. I need to include the subject. Yes. In that. So there's a gerund in there somewhere. So first let me read the description. And there's only one way to read this description. On March 6, 1987, moviegoers met Roger Murtaugh and Martin Riggs, an unlikely pair of Los Angeles cops played by Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, respectively. With Lethal Weapon, screenwriter Shane Black wrote a progenitor of the buddy cop genre, expertly combining an action thriller with dark humor. For a script that only took six weeks to write, Black earned a whopping $250,000 paycheck, and then another $150,000 after the movie was produced. The Richard Donner-directed movie grossed more than $120 million worldwide, more than half of that domestically, on a $15 million budget. With a franchise composed of four films, it generated almost $1 billion in ticket sales worldwide. As Lethal Weapon makes its way back to audiences, this time via the small screen, here are 17 dynamite facts about the Lethal Weapon franchise. Why don't you give me your top... uh... I don't know. I'm just going to rip through them. I'll rip through them. I already, I already parsed this out, the garbage ones. I've already taken out. So first of all, uh, Shane Black, the first script he wrote was thrown in the garbage. He was 23 years old, trying to become an actor when he wrote the first draft of Lethal Weapon in less than six weeks. Not knowing what a huge hit he had on his hands, at one point he gave up and threw the script into the trash. I thought it was dreadful, Black admitted. I can feel his pain. 
because there are times when everything a writer writes you think is garbage, and sometimes you are wrong. His goal was to write an urban western mixed with Frankenstein. So he's looking to do at that time was write an urban western. Uh, for Riggs, he used his favorite film, Dirty Harry, as a template. That's what he's thinking about for the character, sort of that Frankenstein who everybody reviles. But for what he does, sometimes, for what he's capable of, sometimes you got to go get the monster and bring the monster out to do things that only a monster can do. Sure. Uh, wild guess. Do you know who's offered the director's chair first? Steven Spielberg. Leonard Nimoy. Nice. Yes. Leonard Nimoy. Uh, Richard Donner directed all four Lethal Weapon films. Leonard Nimoy had just directed Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, mm, and Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home, and Three Men and a Baby. He turned down directing Lethal Weapon to concentrate on The Good Mother. Donner toned down the script's violence and was influenced by John Wayne. So this is a very interesting quote. I tried to make it more of an old-fashioned Western, Donner told the New York Times. Sure, there were a lot of deaths, but they died like they died in Westerns. They were shot with bullets. They weren't dismembered. I like action and a strong storyline. I like to turn my head away in suspense, not in disgust. This contrasted with Frank's description of the deaths in the script, which were, the head disintegrates in a bloody spray. So Donner felt that John Wayne fans would recognize some of the punches thrown. The actors were trained in three different forms of martial arts, including capoeira. I don't even think I, I'm like a martial arts fan. I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce the goddamn thing right. Here's I know a, capybara is an animal. It's not. It's not capybara. It's That's not capybara. an animal. Yes. Uh, jailhouse rock, a fighting technique that originated in United States prisons, which I had never heard of before this. And of course, jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Busey recalled learning taekwondo as well. Busey's interest in martial arts began when he was taught these forms for lethal weapon. Here's an interesting one. If you look closely, it turns into a message movie. One of the biggest messages was the um, end apartheid sticker on the Mm -hmm. fridge for which Donner received death threats. Of course. Yes. 1987. He, you got to love Donner for this. He said, if you can make good entertainment and sneak a message in, it's super. Sometimes people do it ass backwards. They make message films and then try and sneak in the entertainment. So we, we run into a lot of this in the science fiction world and in writing. Uh, are people writing stories like, here's my message, and I'm going to wrap some characters around that message? Or here's the story where the characters stand on their own, and now I'm going to insert my message into yeah, the story. Yeah, I don't, as a reader, I don't see a lot of that, but I don't, maybe I don't know what I read a lot, but you know, I don't know if they, I mean, I'm hitting those right notes. But I will say it's interesting because this was an American family in California in Los Angeles County, mm-hmm. who are African-American, mm-hmm. that seems perfectly rational to me today that they would have an end apartheid sticker on the fridge. They never reference it, but yep. it's in the scene. They do a handful of scenes in the kitchen. They do a handful of scenes in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's certainly there, but it doesn't seem out of place, but I can certainly see that. And there were some anti-NRA and anti-tuna posters in there as well. Now, going back to what we talked about, how the movie seems devoid of any racial commentary. You know, it's just kind of optimally what we would all aspire our nation to be like. It doesn't friggin' matter. They're just dudes right. doing their it job. It would be nice to be there. Yeah. It would be nice to be there. Murtaugh wasn't written with a particular ethnicity in mind. So they wrote the whole script, and nowhere in the script does it mention Murtaugh's ethnicity. Uh, Donner said, we just got the best actor for that part we could get, and it happened to be he was black. Donner said this during an 87 press conference. Uh, that somebody asked, said to him, did you see the color purple? What about Danny Glover? And uh, 
Donner said his first reaction was, but he's black. And then he thought, oh, wait, way to go, Mr. Liberal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The first thing you think about is he's liberal. So the, they said it was a, a brilliant idea and they just like, they, he was perfect and they got him. Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting when you think about the specific notes on uh, Murtaugh's daughter's boyfriend, who mm-hmm. she wants to go out with on a Friday night, but she's grounded because she was smoking pot in the house mm-hmm. and um, she can't. He says, another, this sort of seating for for the future, he says, I don't even like that guy with the dimples and the hair and the whatever. And you have to figure that was a script note because that's what comes over the APB or right. the, the, yeah, the the uh, call when there's a murder, a body found close to Murtaugh's house. Yep. And he says, yeah, what's my luck? He's blonde hair and has big dimples. And the dispatcher says, well, how did you know that? Right. Which we need, right? We need the blonde hair and dimples. I mean, it could be something else, but we need whatever that note was to know because we never see the boyfriend ever, ever. So I find that interesting because that could have been, that standalone could have been the same in the original script. And then they were like, okay, well now he's obviously going to have black kids who, of course, doesn't matter if she dates a blonde. So now, I mean, that's why the movie plays that way because the script was like, Shane Black didn't give a crap one way or another. He just wrote characters. I love this one. Gary Busey thought about a shark while prepping for his bad guy role. Now, (laughs) if you guys are not familiar with the wonder that is Gary Busey, he is a rather eccentric individual who has done a lot of neat things in Hollywood, but he's just a little bit, he at least portrays himself as a little bit off his rocker. He said he always builds a backstory for his characters to get in the mood of it. For this role, Mr. Joshua, he would walk through his grandmother's, he describes Joshua as, Joshua would walk through his grandmother's blood to get a postage stamp and never look at her. He had this look here, and then in the interview, Busey then takes off his sunglasses and gives the look. Gave me the eyes of a shark, which has no life. I've been doing that. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, and you know, Gary Busey had a had a, a, a very severe, almost life ending car accident okay. or my, motorcycle, motorcycle accident, accident. Yeah, where I don't believe he was wearing his helmet. So I wonder if this was pre or post accident, because mm-hmm. I find that his his in his um, apparent instability, he seems a little. Zanier. Zany is a good word. After Mm -hmm. the the accident than before, because he doesn't seem all that zany and lethal weapon. Uh, If you've never seen DC Cab, ladies and gentlemen, that is also some of Gary Busey's best work. This is fascinating. Riggs was supposed to die in the second movie. Mm. Said they were always on the brink of bumping Riggs off. Um, This is from Gibson in an interview with Empire Magazine. But, uh, you know, at some point, there's just, there's nothing you can do. If you kill Riggs, the entire franchise is right because he's mel friggin gibson you kind of well and he's also martin riggs the whole the whole story pivots around him pivots around his redemption you know all murtaugh has to do and it's no easy feat to do it so i'm not dismissing that but murtaugh's character arc is just do the same surviving he's done for his entire career Mm -hmm. for just a few more days with the crazy or excuse me the zany new uh partner okay that's it. He's had other crappy partners before. He's had other weirdo partners before. But Riggs literally has to save himself. He has to find a reason it's worth not eating that bullet every day, which he talks about in the beginning of the movie. And he has to find a reason to be happy. And he just, you know, there are a few contrived things in the later movies and the later series that really are To get to, his angst back. Yeah, and pull on the, the viewer's heartstrings, uh-huh. the audience's heartstrings in a very sort of cliche way. But he... He never takes a break. He never, never phones it in. Not one time. He's always really trying hard to tell, to to communicate that with his performance. And I find that Martin Riggs' story is 
the story of redemption that's the most valuable, I think, in this series, even though it's a comedy. Uh, lethal, we'll jump to Lethal Weapon 2 for a moment. One of the funniest scenes in Lethal Weapon 2, uh, the condom commercial, when Roger Murtaugh finds out his daughter's acting debut is in a condom commercial. Uh, they got $10,000 from Ramsey's condoms for the budget. So they mm. got $10,000 product placement, which, you know, the movie's like $2 million, $3 million. That's a lot of, sure. it's a big, big chunk of it. Another point, ma'am, Carrie Fisher helped write Lethal Weapon 3. After Carrie Fisher's success in adapting her own semi-autobiographical postcards from the edge, she was hired as a script doctor for several major movies. In addition to punching up the dialogue for Lethal Weapon 3, she worked on Hook, Sister Act, Outbreak, The Wedding Singer, and even the Star Wars prequels. Mm -hmm. Lethal Weapon 4 was made faster than the other films. Shocker. Yes, they they cranked that out. You couldn't tell, I'm sure. Uh, It had to be ready in six months Mm. from start to finish. Production was ready. (laughs) Production didn't begin until January 1998, but the movie needed to be released in July. After production ended, Frank J. Erosti had only four weeks to edit the movie, doing it digitally on Avid for the first time. But. They, everybody seems to be okay with it because the film grossed $285 million worldwide, slightly less than Lethal Weapons 3's haul of 321 You want to give us your next, your last I got, big favorite? I got two, and you'll like the last one. Okay. Just a quick one. Jet Li made his Hollywood debut in Lethal Weapon 4. Jet like Li had not done an American movie before. Also, was super pissed. His fans are super pissed. He played a bad guy. So here sure. we are, American audiences. Most have never seen Jet Li. Like, that's an awesome bad guy. He's great. Back home, they're like, uh, Jet Li, no more. No, right, uh, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's yeah. he's not a good guy. So then he got to do Romeo Must Die. He got to be a good guy. And finally, ma'am, Shane Black likes setting his movies during Christmas time because it's unifying. Fair enough. It totally is unifying. He's, Everybody celebrates Christmas. You know what? It's, yeah, that's a great point. The Long Kiss Goodnight, The Last Boy Scout, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, all set around Christmas time. Because, you know, he says at Christmas, everybody's getting together with family, eating dinner. Right. Everybody experiences that season in one way or another. There's a lot of shared, unified emotions well, and feelings. Well, and there's a lot of set design that would be in common. Because I know, like I have a friend who's an, who's who's Italian, mm-hmm. and her family always has Christmas with baked ziti on the table, which is okay. not a thing that has ever happened at my house, unless somebody brought it as a potluck. You mm-hmm. know? But it, it isn't Christmas at her house without it, you know? And... In both our houses, there are Christmas twinkle lights and Christmas trees and all those things. So the set design especially makes everybody's, you know, in a, everybody's sort of home life or the, the public, like maybe there's a Christmas tree in the police precinct or whatever. It makes us all that same yep. kind of human. Mm-hmm. It also stands as a stark contrast when you see the very little you see of Riggs's home. No Christmas. No Christmas, no life, no. He does have groceries. <laughs> Blows my mind that he has groceries. He doesn't have clean laundry. He doesn't, he doesn't even have laundry to wear. He's walking around buck naked all the damn time. I tell you what. Yeah. Um, here's a question for you. Speaking of Christmas, ma'am. Now, uh, my mother is of Jewish descent. My father is of German descent, German Catholic, Jewish. Mm-hmm. What do you think our favorite meal, our favorite Christmas meal, Sigler family Christmas meal is? <sighs> it's obvious. Would, it's so obvious. Potato latkes? Uh, turkey burritos. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's not a thing I would have had at my Christmas table either. But I bet you had a Christmas tree. Of yes, we had Christmas. Yeah. We, we had several so several Christmas trees. But yeah, tur- tur- baked turkey burritos. Oh, I miss them. I miss them. I have to make those soon. Those are going to be yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I'll I, make those I, for lunch I, one of these days. I would love that. I yeah. would love that. You have to make it for lunch so I can have some. 
All right. So that is our show for this week. If you have questions for Scott or for me, or if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on a future episode of Story Smack, please email us at info at emptyset.com. You can find us both online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am a real girl on Twitter and a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find this show online at scottsigler.com slash storysnack. We love, love, love to see your comments there. You can find us on iTunes, search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks, and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday and a big hit of Story Snack every Friday. And next week, we will ask that all-important life question, Are you not entertained? <laughs> well, catch us next week, and until then, we'll talk to you all real soon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.